Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're joined by Burmese-Australian barrister and former criminal defence lawyer Andrew Bow, talking about his debut book, The Truth Hurts, which provides an unflinching outside perspective on the faults of Australia's justice system. Bo takes us from cases of Indigenous deaths in custody to cases of self-defence after years of domestic abuse, from defending Ivan Milat to defending Pauline Hanson. He spares no one, not even himself, to explore the human cost of not getting to the truth. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on your show. So you began writing what became The Truth Hurts back in 2011 to process a particularly tough case you'd just finished regarding the death of a couple in the Gibson Desert. How did the book develop between that first chapter and now? Well, um, when, when I'd finished writing it, and it took me a long time to do that, um, and I had no uh, aspirations of, of doing any more, uh, my partner in, said to me, look, you know, uh, why don't you start writing again? Because w- when I was doing that, I was probably more uh, uh, sufferable for, for her domestically. Mm. Um, uh, and I realised that uh, there were other stories which may be of interest in being uh, catalogued. So I sat down and over the space of about six months or so, wrote about 10 stories. And each of those were cases which which others that I'd been speaking to thought and reminded me about. Um, and I hadn't intended it to be a, a, a book which did anything more than just say those stories. Yeah. Um, and so that was a state that it was in for, for, for when I finished it. And I happened upon a, a friend who'd written a book at, at a launch and an agent, my current agent, uh, asked if she could read it, and she came back and and went off and negotiated, you know, uh, a deal with six or seven publishers who who wanted to publish it. So the pressure was on at that point to to mm. turn the manuscript into something more readable, and each of them uh, thought that it was necessary to put more of me into the book to explain the context within which. I was making these observations, and I resisted it, and uh, I didn't do that very well because I think there is more in the book about me than I feel comfortable with. But uh, it, it seemed to have made sense that uh, readers may wish to know uh, the perspective that I was bringing to to the cases that I was commenting about. Mm. Well, why did you not feel comfortable having so much of you in the book? Oh, because I didn't want to write a book about myself. Yeah, um, and. Uh, uh, not quite ready to write a memoir, so uh, if I was ever going to be ready, and and I would not have thought of doing it. Um, uh, as I say, my, my my plan was to to rid myself of the 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 grime, as I call it, of this sort of practice, and uh, uh, in the end, um, uh, I, I guess to make it more readable, uh, there's a perspective in there of, of a personal kind. 
Mm. And you mentioned uh, ridding yourself of, of that grime. And a lot of the cases that you, you bring up in this book are quite shocking to read in some parts. How did you navigate going back and revisiting these difficult cases that you'd, you'd had and your role in them while you were writing the book? Yeah, it, um, it, it wasn't easy to do. Um, I don't think uh, professionals, whether you, you work as a lawyer or as a uh, emergency surgeon or in a mine, I, I don't think we realise that we do accumulate uh, baggage and trauma from delving into the lives of other people um, and, and the circumstances in which they encounter uh, a, a what must seem to them to be a very strange system. I mean, the criminal justice system uh, is unwieldy and it's complex. And because I'd learnt a few things about it, made it easier to to navigate it. But uh, that doesn't really protect people from the, the 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 harm that the system does to people. And as somebody who doesn't come from a law background like I do, I think the book strikes a really good balance between being very informative about the legal processes in Australia, but it's also not too complicated. How did you go about making sure the book was approachable for the average reader? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I mean, I get bored reading uh, legal books. I I get bored reading legal biographies Mm. Um, uh, and just hearing war stories from a lawyer's perspective is, is sometimes... Uh, a bit egocentric and yeah. and and focuses uh, a, a lot on technical jargon, etc. Um, the, the cases I've covered, which deal with things such as traditional punishment um, uh, and how you know when that is performed, how that interfaces with the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. domestic violence, political corruption, um, extreme sexual violence. Uh, the issue of consent. I mean, the, the, these are matters about which uh, many of us who are not lawyers, uh, many people who are not lawyers, think about and talk about and read about, etc. So, uh, although I might have missed your question, I, I, I just thought it was necessary to speak uh, in in a way where people would be engaged with the story and not the legality, even though the legal frame, I think I have got correct. And I had an enormous amount of help from my editor, Meredith Rose, who um, who has edited quite a few uh, uh, great non-fiction books like Chloe Hooper's The Tall Man. And uh, Chloe put me onto her and Meredith was uh, extraordinary. You know, she was able to uh, question you know, what I meant by a particular paragraph or a point, etc., and interrogate me as a reader might and say, what are you, what are you talking about here when you use these terms, et cetera, et cetera. So that took a lot of revision and that process you know, took close to a year, frankly, of me enjoying her criticism and her sense of humour and trying to make sure that uh, something is not lost in the detail. I mean, I mean, nobody needs to know all the legal detail, but they need to know how the law works, how it affects people and, and how the process unfolds. Many chapters in the book cover the massive problem that our justice system has with regards to Indigenous people, whether, as you mentioned, it would be our laws clashing with the, their laws, or at the time of this podcast, the massive amounts of deaths in custody that have led to no convictions. In light of the increased scrutiny on these events, thanks to the Black Lives Matter movement, do you think that some of these problems might start to be addressed soon? The fact that 
uh, more non-Indigenous non people are engaged with the issue is, of course, a good thing. Mm. Uh, that it took the death of an American um, for that to happen in this country says a little bit about who we are as a country. Um, uh, and so I don't necessarily think that uh, social media and other attention uh, is necessarily going to, to result in political change. And uh, the matters of intransigence uh, abound when you look back at history. So the current uh, uh, statement from the heart, the Uluru statement, is stalled in political circles, yet uh, it's a matter uh, which is simple in its design. Uh, it, it, it simply is asking that there be a, uh, an official recognition that there is a need for parliamentarians to be informed about the impact of the laws that they are promulgating uh, from a body made up of Indigenous voices and intellects who can explain these matters to Parliament in a better way by commentary. They don't have a right of veto to stop the law, but they have the opportunity to systemically provide details to government when they enact these laws. Now, the fact that that is resisted and not greatly supported by both sides of Parliament because it's a politically difficult issue um, uh, is still there. It's not going to change. And uh, as I speak about in the book, and you know, uh, it's not just about Indigenous cases, but it is a significant uh, matter of conversation in the book. I, I, I can only hope that we do more than um, you know, march and protest and write emails and and um, and engage in social media. Um, we, we need to share the experience of the other. It's only when we break bread, we live with, we engage with, we we learn from uh, other people that we actually see them as human. Mm. And at the moment, that divide hasn't yet been crossed in my assessment. Look, there's some great sparkling examples of it working. There's some extraordinary people who work in this space. But the general community, uh, I don't think, has yet reached a point where their understanding is not about a problem, but about a, a sense of humanity, about another shared experience in the world in which we operate. And for that to happen, hearts and minds have to change and a lot more conversation needs to take place. Mm. One of the other ideas brought up uh, in light of George Floyd's death is that there's been a push for the defunding or even the abolition of police forces in America and even in Australia. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and if you think it's even feasible to happen in Australia. Yeah, well, um, I think there's perhaps some misconceptions um, about what defund the police as a... Uh, proclamation really means. It's kind of become a bit of a uh, catchphrase, yeah. yeah. If, if it means to um, reprioritise resources that are given to equip, equipping police forces with military level uh, weaponry and to divert that towards areas in which uh, crime is diverted or where communities are empowered, where there's much more regard for for the medical causes for drug addiction rather than it being a legal offence, where Indigenous people are given more space to be able to talk about their educational and social and housing limitations and how 
uh, crime to poverty are committed. Well, well of course. I mean, that, that the sort of project that uh, Australia needs to embark upon, and there are examples of that, mm. um, uh, and, and and strong examples of that. But if, if the notion is that we no longer need police uh, to police communities, or that somehow crime which does exist uh, will be will be less occurring if there's less police. I mean, I think that's a naive fallacy. I'm sure those who are the proponents for it mean the former rather than the latter. Those who are in the polemic response to this in social media go to the simplicity of the words and and criticise it, and rightly so. So sloganism is, is I mean, it's useful to get get likes on on uh, social media, but it doesn't really advance the conversation. Mm. Uh, they're, they're just as reinvest, you know, a, a, a program that's been working out at Burke in dealing with engaging the whole community in ensuring policing to take responsibility at a community level for, for crime and rehabilitation, etc. Well, they're, 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 they're no-brainers. Of course these things should happen. And there's a particular quote from the book that I think sums up a common misconception about Australia's justice system, where you say that Australia's criminal justice system was not designed to seek the truth. Um, I was curious if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. Um, focusing firstly on the criminal justice system, as I've written in the, in the introduction, uh, the, the, the adversarial system, that is where one party argues against another in court, prosecutor on one side and defence lawyer on the other, it is not designed and never has been intended to identify what the truth of the matter is. All that a court does is assemble the relevant evidence and that relevance is determined by a trial judge and then put that into in front of a jury and have both sides argue about uh, the, the cogency of the evidence mm and then to determine on a very high standard, beyond reasonable doubt, whether or not that which has been alleged by the prosecutor uh, has in fact been established to the necessary degree. It follows from that, that there are many steps along the way where the truth is evaded. Firstly, trial judges don't decide what evidence comes before them. It's in the hands of the police and the prosecutors. A trial judge only applies very complex rules of admissibility to see, to make sure under these very uh, historically based laws and, and, and provisions as to what can a jury safely hear. There's been a long debate, for example, about to what extent events, uh, acts of the offender prior to this particular event can be used to infer the guilt of the person. So sex cases are an example, uh, whether you look at whether or not things they've done in the past can be admitted, not proven, but things done in the past can be used to infer guilt. And that's called tendency and coincidence reasoning in New South Wales or propensity in the common law. So can somebody be convicted on evidence of, of somebody's propensity? Now, 20 years ago, the law was pretty clear. No, it couldn't unless it fit a really narrow band of being so, uh, so, so similar uh, now we have a situation where a person can be convicted mostly because the Crown has proved that that person had a propensity to do something. That doesn't get to the truth of that particular offence. Secondly, when you talk about 
uh, courts, much of the work of judges is to exercise discretion, is to decide on a particular test whether or not something uh, should go in or should not go in into a trial. Now, the judges who exercise the discretion historically have been uh, chosen from a very narrow band within the community, white middle-class men, mm. whose exercise of discretion may well differ with people from a different demographic, even women. So uh, the filters under which evidence comes before juries, we have this uh, mystique about the law that somehow when a judge makes a judgment that it's got some fundamental truths in it. It doesn't. It simply has the application of law, the exercise of discretion by an individual lawyer who's been chosen by by uh, politicians to, to fulfil that role. So what I was trying to get to, not so much that the system doesn't necessarily work in that sense, but rather if you're looking at verdicts to determine the truth, you're, you're, you're going to be hit and miss about that a lot. And on the topic of misconceptions, the role of a criminal defence lawyer, as you were for many years, it's an often misunderstood one. What misconceptions or stereotypes about that did you want to clear up in your book? Well, I've done a fair bit of that, and I and I still work as a criminal barrister. I, I, I mean, the, I don't know if I'm wanting to persuade uh, anyone that these misconceptions should be disabused. I mean, uh, much about any every area of endeavour is unknown to other than those who practise within it. I guess what I was trying to put out there is that some of the uh, naive or informed biases about the law, if they were explained in a way that people understood it as they might apply to them, it, it, it would elevate the discussion you know, to one that's more closely related to what actually happened. Mm. I mean, people uh, sometimes ask, you know, um, you know, how can you act for that person um, um, when you know that they're guilty, for example? You know? How do you feel about having done that, etc.? Well, I've sought to explain that. Mm. Um, pe people talk about, uh, you know, uh, why do you choose those particular cases to do? And I explain those sorts of things. So. So uh, it, it's not a lecture. Um, I hope you know the book is not all heavy. I mean, there are, I think, some light, lighter moments in it. Uh, I'm trying to, to provide a human perspective to a system that many people don't know much about in real terms. There's a, there's a phrase that you use at the end of the book, which I think sums it up really nicely, where you say there can be no solutions without first acknowledging problems. And I think the book does a great job of doing that. And I think you touched on this a little bit before, but with that knowledge in hand, what can us readers do to push for more change with our legal system? Yeah, um, these are big subjects, and I don't pretend that my book is anything more than a small book about the things I noticed. Um, I, I, I want to make that fairly clear. The reader shouldn't read me as an expert in this area. I think the reader should read me as being a person that's willing to explain some things they noticed so they can make their own evaluation of these matters. I think that when there's more engagement where people are not yelling at you, you know, like I don't think you can persuade many people, or I don't think you can persuade most people of many things. You know, There's a significant minority that is pretty set on particular views. Um, uh, where the divide is in this country, whether it be in relation to uh, Indigenous identity and relationships with Indigenous Australians, whether it be how we're ad addressing COVID-19 issues, how we're addressing climate change. So um, I don't have 
the uh, the lofty aspiration that's going to change anything. Um, I'm hoping that it's a good read for people who want to understand a few more things about the criminal justice system, and not just the criminal justice system, because I deal with uh, cases other than criminal cases. The the hope is that uh, with this sort of information, others can can be critical of what I've written, uh, um, have uh, provide a contradicting perspective if necessary. Um, uh, and and elevate the conversation to a level where when we, we get to the essential issues about which we are in disagreement about. If that can happen, uh, much can be achieved. Just get rid of the, the, uh, the chaff so that, that we can see more clearly the system we have. You know, I describe a system where many, many cases funded by government in terms of legal aid or public defence where barristers, uh, young barristers, are picking up briefs uh, a day or two before a trial starts. That's the level uh, of justice that many, many people receive, you know. And and I guess until one of us or our children or friends face a criminal justice, and we do realise then at that point how arbitrary the system is, even with people with enormous resources. I mean, I've, as I've explained in the book, I've acted for billionaires and... and um, and people with uh, extraordinary resources who've expended enormous amounts of money in defending themselves. And even they see how arbitrary the system can be. Whilst we can talk about these things in this sort of conversation, in the jury, jury room, um, uh, we don't know what happens in there. Mm. And we, all of us are very good at covering up our prejudices and in making sure that what we want uh, known about us are our virtues. So when, when, when we don't talk about um, the, those little noises in our head where we sometimes do act in a discriminatory way or we make an assumption about something on race, class, um, uh, whether it be that we make an assumption about somebody that drives a BMW as opposed to somebody um, you know, who, who walks around barefoot. You know, we, we, we have a lot of inherent prejudices in us a system which relies on fellow citizens to determine the guilt of, of another um, has to make sure that those prejudices don't inform the result. Um, I'm hoping that the examples I use um, uh, trigger a, a sense, a, a conscientious sense that we have a social responsibility. This social contract that we enter into in living with each other has to be informed in a way uh, that looks at these examples and sees that sometimes these sorts of things happen and and if we face them, if we face the reality that these things happen, uh, then we can do more. When we can see that it disproportionately is less than perfect for some classes in our community, we have a real responsibility mm. if we are a broader class to make sure that we don't leave anybody behind. Um, I, I, I listened to... Uh, Paul Keating give a, uh, a video of him giving the 1993 uh, Prime Minister's speech in relation to the International uh, Year of the Indigenous Peoples. Uh, it was extraordinary that a Prime Minister was speaking like that uh, you know, in 1993, which is 27 odd years ago, and that those same words could be spoken by any Prime Minister now. And those same frustrations that he was speaking about are still there. Mm. All those issues that he was troubled with, the inability of, of white Australia to embrace their responsibility, 
to recognise that there's, there's really one great poignant line in it. He says, when will we accept that by putting our hand back to pull somebody up from behind us does not necessarily mean bringing us down. And I think it's that sense that I want to evoke, a, a sense that a system was designed by colonisers who came to this country in, in order, and under this extraordinary lie that nobody else lived here beforehand, set up a system of justice, whether it be criminal justice or otherwise, which was there to privilege those who came with them and, and who, who couldn't see that, that the community would grow as it has to the country that we have now. Mm. Now, if we don't have a system that embraces what is our current manifestation, which hasn't got a gendered view, which hasn't got a colonial view, which doesn't have a racist view, then uh, protests like Black Lives Matter will grow and grow and grow as the discontent increases. I mean, the tragedy of deaths in custody uh, in Australia uh, uh, is as stark as that in the US. And there's two cases I, I write about in the book about that. So, and to think that the Palm Island case was nearly 20 years ago, 17 years ago, um, and not much has changed. Mm. It's um, been 20 years space. since the, the Royal Commission into the Aboriginal deaths in custody and nothing's changed. Yeah, so, so, so they're the reasons that the book is in its current form. Um, I, I, I didn't, as I, we've spoken about, I didn't set out to write any book, mm. but the, the, the book that uh, we've all collaborated on and got out there soon uh, hopefully will provide a, a further addition, a small addition to the conversation. Let's hope so. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for your time.